Welcome to the Internet History Podcast. I'm your host, Brian McCullough. If you know the Napster story at all, then you know about the Seans, Sean Fanning and Sean Parker. But in my opinion, and in the opinion of a lot of other people, a name that you should be just as familiar with is Jordan. Jordan Ritter. Napster was an incredible phenomenon reaching tens of millions of users at its height, and though Jordan Ritter didn't invent Napster, he was very much responsible for scaling it and ensuring that it turned into the phenomenon that it became. So in today's episode, Jordan recounts the entire Napster story, from its gestation in the Woo Woo Hacker Collective, which, by the way, people talk a lot about the PayPal Mafia, but an argument can be made for a uh, woo-woo mafia. That might be a different episode. Um, all the way through Napster's legal descent into oblivion and the implications for the recording industry, music industry, etc. You guys might know Jordan better as the co-founder of Cloudmark and Servio, and at the end of this episode, he talks about the big problems that he's working to solve today with his current startup. So please enjoy this conversation with Jordan Ritter. Jordan Ritter, thanks for coming on the Internet History Podcast. Thanks. Great to be here with you. So uh, let's let's get a, a couple of geek bona fides out of the way. Um, what was your what was your first computer, either either your own personal computer or, or your family's first computer? Yeah, uh, my dad, I think, gave me an XT uh, when I was a wee one, uh, an old PC XT, for those that don't know, it was one of the first uh, desktop computers. But I wouldn't call that my computer. Uh, my first computer was a Commodore 64, and I mostly played games on that with an Atari joystick. But uh, I liked actually programming a basic. And then when I got to high school, I got a, a 28612. So maybe a lot of people don't don't remember uh, what there was before we have these Intel chips we have today, but that was uh, a custom computer made by Epson, uh, and it, it was a 12 megahertz CPU. It had 640 glorious kilobytes of RAM, <laughs> and it had a 40 megabyte disk uh, with an 80 millisecond, I think it was 80 millisecond access time, which is, all these things are unheard of these days. Uh, so this was some ancient stuff. Well, you're lucky you even had that disk because you could have still had uh, running off of two different floppy drives. Oh, we were doing that, right? I, I don't think many people even remember the five and a quarter floppies uh, from those days. But uh, yeah, I remember going through a set of, I think, 14 uh, floppy, three and a half inch floppy disks to install Windows 95 back in the day uh, and to play with OS2 and, and all those things. So those were actually really fun days because the hardware was so, yeah, it was so incomparable to what we have today. And if you wanted to do anything meaningful back then, you really had to optimize and understand how these systems work and, and save bytes and save performance and, and, and really program uh, optimally. And these are different days we live in today. What about, uh, what about going online? Do you remember the, the first, your first experience online? Was it, was it BBSs <laughs> or what was it? 
Yeah, it was it was BBS. It was a mix of news groups and BBSs. But I'll, I'll tell this somewhat uh, embarrassing story. Um, you know, when you're you're a kid, you're a high schooler, you're a bit of a punk, a bit of a hacker, a bit of a smart smart. You know what? Uh, I, I was in the international baccalaureate program, so that only reinforced the notion that I was I was uh, uh, maybe smarter, too too smart for my own good. So I, I log in, I, di- I dial up to this BBS for the very first time with my buddy from high school. And I don't remember, I think it was a, a WIV BBS, a WWIV type of BBS. And it said, okay, what do you want to name yourself, register? And I'm staring at this prompt and I'm thinking, what do I want to call myself? And uh, in classic, true, childish uh, fashion, I wrote um, Big Daddy D's Nuts. <laughs> and, <laughs> and I hit enter to put in my password and we hit enter and we're waiting for our crappy 2400 baud modem to transmit. And it comes back and it says, it's too long. <laughs> and so I'm sitting there going, what do I call myself? This, I didn't realize that this is a critical moment. And right at the moment when I was thinking about, well, what name would I choose? Uh, the, the other end hung up. And so for those of us that have used uh, modems before, what you see is a no carrier signal. And because the cursor was positioned at the login screen, I saw the words no carrier. And I thought in that moment, ooh, that's kind of a Zen clever, mm. like knock, knock, who's there, nobody. And so no carrier was the name that I took at that point from then on throughout you know, my entire online uh, history. So uh, you attended Lehigh University. What were you, what were you studying there? I joined uh, originally for music. So I was uh, a music major. Uh, comp sci was something that was naturally easy for me. So I've been uh, doing that throughout high school. And then when I got to college, it was just an automatic, like, great, let's take some more cl- classes there. Uh, very quickly, I think within the first six weeks of being at Lehigh, um, decided that all that stuff was so easy that I could just double major. So I had to petition the deans at the three different colleges and convince each one of them inside the university that I could handle the course load. Uh, so I, I took 24 credits of 120 total for my degree, 24 credits for my first semester. Because uh, I learned a lot in the National Baccalaureate program about um, being efficient and productive. Unfortunately, one thing they didn't teach me was moderation. Uh, <laughs> probably a lesson I still haven't learned. And so uh, 24 credits the first semester, 21 credits the second semester, 18 credits the third, and 15 credits the fourth. You see a progression there. Yeah, you banged uh, it out. Of, I banged it out and I burned it out. <laughs> uh, so well, it was a well, fun experience. One more thing before we get into uh, what we're here to talk about. Um, before mm-hmm. before Napster and all that, you, you were already employed at, at a place called Bindview Development. What were you doing? What was your first job there? Uh, the the original job was Natect. So Natect was a startup based out of, actually based, based out of Israel, and they had a satellite office in Boston. And uh, after I basically burned myself out of college, uh, I decided to move, and Boston's a beautiful city, very young and vibrant. I think it's got over 100 colleges and universities, so lots of youth there. Looked for a job, landed one as a basically a paid hacker at Natect, and they were they were building a product cleverly named Hacker Shield, mm. uh, which in 1998 
um, there was, you know, the, the realm of computer security was really a consultant's job. You had these tools, you'd call in a consultant, they'd run their scanners and tell you what systems were vulnerable and give you advice and guidance about what to fix. But there was no real software that you can install as an IT person uh, to just monitor your network and defend it for you. Uh, and so that's what we were building. I originally started as a security researcher, and my job was to break other people's software, uh, write out how I did that, maybe publish vulnerabilities, and I did on a few really significant ones, um, and then uh, start incorporating them in the product. And uh, very quickly, that converted to becoming an engineer and working on the product. And from there, it just uh, went forward. Eventually, we, we got bought. So my very first startup, my very first true startup, was acquired by a public company called Bionview Development Corporation. They had a ton of uh, Windows IT management stuff, but uh, they didn't have a security component. And, uh, made, it was a good a good uh, merger at the time so it's for like, everyone, I think. It sounds like it was it was your average sort of uh, white hat uh, <laughs> hacker job in, in, in corporate America, uh, teaching them how to be yeah. safe. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, you know, I, I take issue personally. You know, so this is a bit of my perspective coming through. Mm. I take issue with the white hat notion. Mm. Uh, I think uh, true white hats are liars or charlatans. <laughs> I think everybody's either gray or black. Right. Uh, because you can't really, you don't really know what you're talking about unless you have gotten that experience of what it is like to bypass security, to bypass authentication. To actually question do, is in do service the dirt. to what? To do the dirty work and to get you know, a little less white. Um, but, you know, what defined us and the, the group I was, the underground group I was a part of, uh, really separately from a lot of others, was really just a curiosity and interest in how things worked uh, and how to make them better versus a lot of others, you know, where individuals on the internet back in those days were basically nation states of one and they would do whatever they wanted to do. Uh, usually for stupid or silly or, or maybe criminal reasons, we were more oriented around uh, wanting to understand how things work. Well, that's a perfect seg into um, getting you to tell us about Woo Woo. Uh, Brian here, uh, jumping in real quickly. At this point, we had to change phone connections. Um, I don't know what's happening with uh, Skype or whatever recently. Uh, people have complained about that, but listen, I can't get everybody in person. And so a lot of times we have to deal with what we have to deal with. Um, so we uh, switched uh, Jordan's phone and the interview continues now. So I was out in Boston um, working as a paid hacker by day. Uh, I had actually uh, gotten an opportunity to work as a bouncer for my favorite uh, bar, the New England, the Northeast Brewing Company, mm -hmm. uh, as well as getting to teach a class at Harvard. Uh, it was Pearl class. Uh, so I was, I was basically having this wonderful, interesting life, um, having just left college. And uh, a gentleman by the name of David Goldsmith uh, reached out to me and he was like, hey, me and a bunch of friends are in the underground hacking scene. We'd love to connect with you and hang out and get to know you. Um, you might be interested. And I thought, like, wow, this is really interesting. Someone has reached out out of the ether uh, and might know me, and these might be cool people. Uh, and back then, I, I think it's a bit different today. Back then, they really were social communities. A lot of us were what you would more traditionally characterize as misfits. Uh, and, and that in and of itself was the social community that uh, one of the dimensions in which we all connected, being these geeky, nerdy, uh, misfit-style people. 
I, I, I show up and I start meeting these folks. And first thing I ever did was I went to a 2600 meeting, uh, which is where a lot of these guys would bump out. El- a lot of these very well-known guys would bump elbows with folks who were just starting to get interested. Uh, and 2600 uh, was, was, isn't really an official thing, I think, at this, at this point anymore. But back then it was, a, it was sort of a hacker club without all the negative connotations of, of what we, we think of as hackers today. Uh, and then we would, uh, this was the fun part, uh, we would all get up and leave the 2600 meeting, which had a lot of young people in it, and go to a 2621 meeting. And the, 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 the thing about that was we would take basically all the adults, all the people who had experience and, and wanted to have a different level of conversation, and go into a bar. Mm. And, and then the other folks couldn't join us. <laughs> and those were actually the funnest ones because it, you know, we had a bunch of these different experiences. We'd all get together and have dinner, uh, and we would all bring an exploit. And, and, the, and the, the game was uh, a zero-day exploit that no one had ever seen before, and then the group would vote on who had the best, and they would get their dinner paid for by the rest of the group. So uh, it was kind of fun, and, and it turns out that these guys were the loft guys, the L0PHT guys, and some of the new Hack City people, uh-huh. uh, and that was part of Dave G's group, uh, and the CDC guys. And I still know all of them. We're all great friends still to this day. Uh, but it, w- it really was sort of this, this both online and offline community of, of geeky, nerdy people. Uh, it's been popularized in, uh, in a lot of different movies, uh, but... Um, you know, that movie like Hackers, with Angelina Jolie in it, a lot of those things actually happened. Parties like that actually happened. A lot of people don't know that. Uh, all that stuff was largely real, mm-hmm. even though it looked like it wasn't. And then, so then that evolves into woo-woo? Like, that's, that's where yeah. you hang out online then? Yeah, so, so a lot of this, you know, back in those days, uh, most online community was on IRC or Internet Relay Chat. Right. Um, I was working at Detect, later Bindview, after they bought us, and uh, we had formed our own social community called WooWoo, and we chose that name just sort of out of capriciousness uh, to not take ourselves seriously. Uh, but but we, were, we turned out to be the largest online uh, security group uh, in the world at the time. We were about 60-some-odd odd people, and we only had a couple rules. Uh, and this is what kept us honest, and I think actually what led us led to us a lot of us being successful. Um, we didn't really realize it at the time, but values and culture were really important. And we we had these rules: you could invite anyone into the group, but anyone could kick anyone out of the group. Mm. And so the effect of that, without having to say what our values were, was we could introduce people to others, but if someone was uncomfortable, you know, they would select out for effectively what were values. Like, I don't trust this person. I don't believe this person. I think they're doing something that's going to get us all in trouble, like things like that. And we, we self-organized into, as I said, this long-standing group of people, many of whom have become successful. So uh, out of WooWoo, uh, I did stuff. Sean Fanning was in WooWoo. That's where I met him. Uh, Matthew Conover, uh, who uh, went on to start a number of different companies and recently sold his last one to Symantec. Doug Song, who did Arbor Networks and is now doing Duo Security. Uh, Jan, who did WhatsApp, now bought by Facebook. All these people were woo people. Uh, and there's a bunch of other examples of entrepreneurs that came out of this. And I think it was unique to us because of this cultural piece about what we were about uh, and what was important versus not. Just uh, real quickly, one note on that. Um, so we're... <laughs> 
I, I have to imagine, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but were you guys dreaming of, of creating companies, of being entrepreneurs at that point, or were you guys just, this was your hobby and you were just having fun? There wasn't really a shtick about being an entrepreneur back then. Mm-hmm. You know, this was, it was, the, the internet was still the Wild West. It was the, the mid to late 90s. To put it into perspective, people were still dialing up with modems. Uh, Windows 95 was uh, all the rage, but there were people on Windows 3.11. Uh, there weren't that many, you know, Linux was at 0.99, uh, had nowhere near the penetration and proliferation that it's, it's, it's uh, enjoyed up to now. Um, so the, the Internet was a much smaller place and, and also a far less protected place. Uh, it literally was like the Wild West. So for us, um, we were these online communities uh, on IRC and uh, would sort of self-aggregate into these groups that were, uh, you know, interest-based for us, break, uh, breaking software was our interest. Right. So uh, you mentioned Sean Fanning's there. Um, was, was he very active? Like, did you know him well in, in the group, or um, he was just another <laughs> kid? Uh, I think we all knew each other very, very well. Uh, some of us were actually connected in real life. Uh, I, sound, I feel like I sound like a dinosaur saying IRL. <laughs> uh, that used to be all the thing back then, and now we don't even understand that there's a, a life outside of being online. Um, but yeah, uh, he was really active. Uh, there were a number of other people that were really active within the Woo Woo group. And uh, most people don't know this, but the genesis of Napster was uh, to do something we thought was really cool that was actually kind of selfish and solving a frustration of our own. Uh, back then, Data pipes weren't that big. Uh, it was really hard to exchange files on the Internet. Uh, you know, you had to talk to some bot on IRC, or you had to know some secret FTP server. Uh, the, the way to discover and transfer content was, was really poor back then. Uh, and broadband was still just coming into play. We were, the best we had were, were DSL and, and uh, uh, you know, other types of uh, uh, networks. That, that aren't like today's. Mm-hmm. So um, what we did, we basically started writing our own pieces of software. So some of us would write hacking tools, some of us would write scanning tools. In Fanny's case, he started writing a tool that helped uh, exchange music. Because you guys, uh, and, you guys are already trading music files over, over IRC and over <laughs> FTP and things like that. Yeah, we're we're trading everything. Uh, software mm-hmm. we call the wares, right? Uh, and 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 I actually don't think music was as popular a target of of exchange back then, because hmm. even then MP3s were still proliferating. They weren't uh, well known or, or um, uh, well established in the market yet. Like all this technology was just coming to the fore. Uh, so he wrote a piece of software, uh, and the guy's 15, so put this into context, uh, brilliant, capable, uh, like a dog with a bone, uh, but also uh, not professionally trained. So this software was highly unstable, and as, we were, as, as was the cultural norm for WooWoo, we would all have our sort of side projects, and we would ask each other for help. That happened regularly, and because we trusted each other, we would... Uh, you know, openly exchange information without judgment and say, oh, okay, so you're having a problem, this thing isn't working, let me take a look at it with you, or I've seen that before and I know how to solve that kind of problem. Uh, initially, Fanning was working on all of it himself, uh, and he had written an earlier version that used a different kind of protocol called UDP, and it was unreliable. 
Uh, and so as he started to rewrite it in TCP, uh, it, uh, it didn't work that well. <laughs> it's mm-hmm. highly unstable. And so he'd ask for help, but he wouldn't share the source code. Mm. Uh, yeah. So does we're that, all a group of hackers. That, right. Does that sort of like uh, make it more interesting to you? Because, it totally made it more yeah. interesting. Exactly. Like, like, I don't know what he expected, but he's talking to a bunch of people who are, one, on his side, and two, uh, we're a bunch of hackers. And so... Uh, a couple of us started to deconstruct the protocol because there was no protocol spec. A couple of us started to explore the back end and, you know, send it a packet that did this and see what happens and a packet that does that and see what happens. And like, oh, you've got some buffer overruns here or clients are doing these weird, weird things. And so we started helping him regardless. Uh, and then at some point in the summer, uh, Fanning said to me, and I still hadn't met him. We spent all this time online and we'd never met uh, he said to me, hey, uh, I just want to focus on the front end. You want to take over the back end? Mm-hmm. And I said, well, sure. We had just been bought uh, by Bindview, and I had golden handcuffs and was sitting there uh, basically bored. Uh, the public companies are not uh, as risk tolerant to uh, releasing information into the wild or doing things that might uh, tarnish their image. So I was basically parked uh, while they were working out the, deta- the details of how they wanted to take research forward. And so I started working with Fanning in that summer of 99, and he gave me the code, and it was, uh, it, it was unreliable, so I had to rewrite the whole thing. Mm. By the end of the summer, we had this thing rock solid and stable, uh, and we were uh, out raising money. So I think separately, and this is where the elder Fanning comes in, John Fanning, mm-hmm. um, Sean you know, there's a documentary about Sean, so I think it treats the the story very well. But to summarize, uh, Sean didn't grow up with his father, and the best father figure he had was his uncle. And there were many times where the uncle, who himself was an up-and-coming entrepreneur, uh, had Fanning couch surf uh, and gave him an office and gave him a place to, you know, a closet basically to sit in. Uh, and and so as the uncle watched Sean. Uh, start building this stuff for himself and his friends, uh, saw an opportunity, and incorporated the company uh, without Fanning knowing. And he took 70% of it right up front. So that that was sort of an initial early choice in the formation of that company that that really did kind of screw us throughout the ages in terms of the partners we could bring together. Because in essence, for the whole life of the company, the, the, the founder and the people that are actually developing it are, are, sort of don't have control of the larger company. That's right. And, and, and you have to keep in mind, uh, we put engineers on a pedestal today, but that didn't actually happen until about 2000 or 2001. So to put it into context, we were still resources in a machine and there had never been anything like Napster before. There was nothing that took off like a rocket ship like it did. So we were just on the cusp of actually being valued. Uh, but back then, still before that, uh, we were the children who needed parents to mind us. It certainly isn't the case these days. Uh, but there was this mindset and this, this attitude. And because uh, John Fanning uh, owned a large percentage of it and uh, – refused to give up control of the company. There were a lot of great VC partners uh, and executives we got to engage with, but none would come in while he was still involved. And so it always gave us second-class choices and third-class choices uh, for how to take the business forward, Well, we'll come. Yeah, we'll come back to that um, towards the end. But um, so this is something that I don't think a lot of people were aware of, that, that, that Napster had actually incorporated it and ra- raised money and was a real company before – 
it sort of went supernova and, and got all its popularity. So like, um, so you start working on it in June of 99. And then is that around the time that they raised the money and head out to, to San Mateo for the first time? No, it was a little bit later than that. So okay. Fanny and I were working over the summer. I was working nights and weekends because I had my day job and these other two jobs. Um, and uh, in the background, this is where sort of Sean Parker comes into the, con- the conversation. He's also peripheral to woo-woo and peripheral to those online communities. Uh, his strength not designing and developing software, but rather uh, networking, selling, marketing. Like his, his intellect is on those levels. Um, and so he and Fanning also had a personal relationship, and he started to get involved to help raise some of the early money. It was at the end of that summer we raised 250000 from Yossi Amram, from, uh, who was at the time v- CEO of Valassert, mm-hmm. and he wanted us all to move uh, close by to him, and he was in the Bay Area. So it was uh, August, September when the decision was made to move, and poof, all of a sudden an executive team appears, uh, and then I moved in September. So you, you moved a, a few months after the Shans move out. Yeah, I, I don't know if there was ever a moment where they actually moved out because we all couch surfed. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we were all sort of in a, in a state of flux. Maybe I was the only one who had a route. Uh, but when I moved, we all lived together. So we all moved. They, they stopped couch surfing, and we all moved in together to the Marriott residence in San Mateo. Uh, and that was, that was kind of a trip. So if you could, to the best of your ability to remember, uh, why did you want to, to join officially? Why did you want to jump into this, this startup? That's a great question. It's so easy to, re- to revise history with, you know, after when, when you can look back and, and sort of make a story about things. But I think, to be perfectly honest, it was fun. It was exciting. Uh, the security thing, I felt like I had mastered. Um, I had a conversation, in fact, with Dave Goldsmith about uh, the idea of moving out and giving up what I had to start over in the Bay Area and build uh, the company Napster. And uh, he said, Jordan, you know, opportunities for people like us uh, will come and go, but they will always come. And so even if you don't do this now, there will be others down the road. And while I think on the surface that advice might be taken as a good excuse not to take the leap, uh, it actually had the opposite effect on me. Mm. I thought, you're right. No matter where I go, those opportunities will be there. There's something instinctive and neat about this, and like this back end is blowing up, right? It's, it's, uh, the number of users is skyrocketing very quickly, working with Linux, working with crappy commodity PC hardware and making it work, uh, building a service that people very clearly loved and wanted to, to see succeed. Uh, all of those things were wonderful attractants for me. Uh, I didn't know what to expect. I don't think anyone knew what to expect a startup experience to be like. I think 98 was roughly the, the year where those experiences started to be um, uh, uh, established and, and people to understand what that looks like. But, but even then, Napster itself, there was nothing that skyrocketed like that. So there was no playbook or any reference point for what we would expect in that experience. Well, I do want to get into the, the actual technical details just a little bit. So when you, when you go out to California, you're continuing your role on the back end, making sure that it scales, making sure that it's reliable, right? Right. Okay, so 
for someone that maybe didn't have the opportunity to use Napster, um, if I'm a if I'm a user that that downloads the Napster client, say in in '99, um, uh, what do I see? What do I do? Do uh, do I, I have a user account? What what are my options? Just describe what Napster is for me. It was the most basic of apps. I think no one would give it a design award. <laughs> Uh, in retrospect, that's, that's kind of hip and cool, uh, you know, like Google's philosophy of minimalism. There, there weren't, weren't a lot of flashy bells and whistles, but it was basically an app. In fact, it, it wasn't even a complex thing. It was a, a single executable uh, that you would download with a couple of accompanying DLLs, uh, and you would, it was a Windows app. So a desktop app, you'd install it, and then you'd run it, and it'd ask you to choose a username uh, and register with a password, and that was it. And it would boot up and start indexing your hard disk in real time for music, specifically for files with the .mp3 extension. Mm -hmm. And then it would connect to a central service that was the index and in real time inform the index that you you had these files, specifically music files, to share with with others. And then you could do a search. You could say Grateful Dead Live. And it would give you very quickly, less than a second, which was a big deal back then, mm-hmm. uh, it would give you a list of results of files that you might be interested in downloading and the user that had them. And then you'd click one. So it really was this easy. Boot it, install it, uh, register, sign in, uh, wait a second for it to upload all of your file names. You could do a search, find a file, double-click it, and then you would immediately start downloading that file from the other user. So this was also something novel at the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, we sort of take P2P for granted these days, but there was no, it wasn't called P2P back then, and we were the ones who, who brought it to the mainstream. Uh, in, the, in the old days, you used to put all your files on one server. Uh, in, these, in this model, uh, only the server had the index, but the files were actually exchanging data directly. Uh, so that was pretty cool. Well, let's and you get, have the, the music files. Uh, let's get into the complexity of that, too, because... Um, so like, let's just start with search. So like if I, if I log in and I'm, I'm searching for songs, um, like that search engine has to, it's, it has to dynamically change every time I log in. It's not like a, um, a search engines index, which, you know, can change over the course of days or weeks. Like every time someone logs in, you have to do a new index and that sort of thing, right? Yeah. So a little bit more technically, uh, mm-hmm. it isn't that much unlike, uh, a search engine these days, which which are changing all the time, but the typical approach that uh, AltaVista and others like it used to use uh, was a big piece of compute hardware with um, 32 gigabytes of memory, which was huge back then, back 20 years ago and one big shared memory segment. So they would have a number of crawlers that are out getting information and putting it into this massive in-memory index. Maybe it was persisted to disk as a backup. Uh, and then searches would execute against that. The challenge for a startup is you can't afford that kind of hardware, and it's an old way of thinking. Uh, so what we did was we created a distributed system. We built sort of a mini version of that on a Linux server, and those servers could had a real-time in-memory index, and clients Part of what I brought uh, to the backend architecture was a load balancing system. So when you would log in, you would actually talk to the load balancer, and then it would refer you to the right server. So we were distributing the load across a number of different servers. These servers could support anywhere from 4,000 to 8,000 users, and they had this big in-memory index. Uh, and some of our technical evolutions had to do with 
starting with something very simple like uh, a substring match algorithm, so a big index of all the different files and then iterating every time someone ran a search through all the known files on that server. Uh, that evolved uh, a couple times, and, and the place we ended up at was with these, these index structures called ternary trees. So a binary tree usually has a node and then two leaves. A ternary has three. Uh, and one of the side effects of these things is they compress really well, and, and, a, and, a, and a positive search uh, is just a search uh, very quick, very, very quick, and self-balancing effectively. And that was one big leap forward for us. The other big leap forward was when we networked all of these servers together. Mm -hmm. So by, by its peak, we had 100 servers, 100-plus servers, organized into two clusters. And the design there was that each of these servers would connect to all of the other servers, so they had a direct channel to all the others in the network. Uh, and at about 50 is where it tapped out. So we'd have 8,000 users per server, and we have about 50 servers talking to each other. Uh, and when you would run a search, it would search the local server and all of the remote servers. Uh, and in that way, we had, we had built a distributed search engine on the back end. Uh, what was unfortunate was no one actually knew this. Because we were under fire from the government, and the company was taking a very conservative standpoint, understandably, about not creating any more problems than we already had um, and, and arguing our, ca our case in court, we only ever reported to the client how many users were on the local server. So it only ever looked like 4,000, 8,000. Mm. But the truth was it was uh, uh, five to ten times that at any given time. And if you really looked carefully, you'd, you'd see that uh, users uh, that you were downloading from weren't necessarily on your server. Well, that uh, that makes me think of the very basic questions about scalability and things like that. Like, I, I guess you know, massive multiplayer video gaming is sort of around at this point already. But were you were there any other templates or models that you guys were drawing from to be able to create something that would scale to that level, or, or are you making it up as you go? <laughs> we spitballed the whole thing. I think. <laughs> <laughs> which is the glorious and fun part of it if you're a geeky nerd like me. Uh, we did love and adore Dr. Dobbs' journal. And uh, that's, it's, in fact, that's where a couple of the indexing innovations came from. Mm -hmm. uh, the ternary tree in particular, there was a, a review of that algorithm and a couple implement implementations of it. Uh, we wrote our own. But we would, we would learn about CS ideas from sources like that. But like I said, Google Google wasn't really well known back then. Right. Uh, they hadn't popularized at all, uh, hit the mainstream at all. They were de definitely taking market, but we would run into them from time to time, and, and they would be curious and interested about how we built our back end architecture. Uh, and and lo and behold, uh, it's a big it's a big thesis uh, behind how they build their architectures, right? Using commodity PC hardware mm -hmm. and distributed systems. Mm -hmm. That was the wave of the future. Uh, back in a day when we all thought of backend systems as monolithic. Um, and one more thing that I think doesn't get a lot of credit about uh, the Napster client were the features that we would call social at this point, yeah, um, where exactly. you can chat to each other, you have um, a login, you sort of develop a, an identity with, with your Napster login. Go ahead and, and uh, describe some of those things. Yeah, so that's a good point to bring that up. That was the other half of Napster, and I think also why it was successful over more traditional just data transfer tools. Uh, we were coming from IRC, right? So to put it into context, we wanted to exchange files on IRC, but exchanging files on IRC sucked. So at a meta level, what we built was our, our own IRC 
built around the exchange of music. And so you could create channels. It had a lot of the same commands. There was a lot of parity between what you could do on IRC and what you could do on the Napster system. The interface, the chat interface looked a lot like IRC does. Uh, everybody's in a channel. Everybody's talking. People had privileges. Some people didn't. Uh, an entire social system arose around that. We called them the moderator community. I also managed them uh, because I managed the back end and I gave them special privileges. So it was this really interesting dynamic. Again, uh, there, was, there was no Facebook back then. There wasn't even a Friendster. Uh, there was a MySpace, uh, but I, I never really cared for that experience. And, and we, our roots were IRC, so of course we modeled the social experience after that. And it turned out to be a huge part of, I think, why it proliferated. Uh, because you could just engage with anyone and talk about what you liked. And music is always this passionate thing. Uh, I, I don't think I've ever met anyone who says, I hate music. They might say, I hate country music, or I hate rock music, or I hate these things. But mm -hmm. there's always a common ground there to bond and connect on. Uh, and Napster gave them that around this experience of exchanging music. So um, uh, in California, in let's say it's 99, um, what is, what is uh, Sean Fanning's role? He's still doing the front end, and he's still doing a, a heck of a lot of the coding of, of the front end, right? Yeah, so he basically, uh, with, with support from, from John Bedanza and one or two others, uh, handled the front end. Uh, I led the back end. My right-hand guy, Ali Idar, mm -hmm. uh, who is a friend uh, who knew Fanning before I knew him around their chess-related stuff because right. uh, they were working on a, a, an online chess system. Uh, we were all sort of the original uh, server team. There was another Jordan also. He came in a little bit later, uh, Jordan Mendelssohn. So the, the, the office was basically... Uh, Sean working on the client in one room, and then next door, myself and Ollie and Jordan mm -hmm. uh, all working on the back end. And we would, it was this crazy experience. Uh, you know, all of a sudden we have 50,000 users, all of a sudden we have 100, and then we have a million, and the concurrency numbers are hitting thresholds and limits, and we're doing kernel debugging to figure out why these boxes can't handle more, and, and we're sleeping underneath our desks. Uh, literally because we can't, we didn't want to stop until it was 2 p.m. 2 a.m. and there was no, there really was no point in going home because we come back at seven. Uh, so we literally have pillows underneath our desks and and uh, uh, this little crappy Union Bank of California building in downtown San Mateo, mm -hmm. still there, mm -hmm. probably still crappy uh, <laughs> at the top floor, but killer view of the planes coming into SFO. Mm. Uh, it's a crazy experience. It, it, it was one of, for me one of the things that really enforced, and, and I didn't take, I didn't articulate it this way at the time. But for me, it really enforced the power of what we now think of as the 10x engineer, mm -hmm. and the value of a highly connected culture as a force multiplier. So there are all these different kinds of teams of people uh, who are good at particular things, but collectively as a group, you might not qualify them as great because they don't like being around each other, or they don't. Their interpersonal energy is not that strong or great. Uh, for me, that centers around values. Again, it's the thing I thought that made Woo Woo successful and, and pretty much accidentally the thing that I think made Napster successful uh, because by its height, there were only six people uh, legitimately developing uh, code and committing and pushing and managing. So we did a lot with a very, very little. And I'm very proud of that, uh, mm -hmm. of, of all of us and what we were able to achieve. Uh, what, what was Sean Parker's role out in California? Not clear. Yeah. Uh, he got to. He, he, 
he didn't write a line of code, so I'll, I'll just put that out there. Right. Um, he he helped uh, be the face of the company. You know, sort of put it in perspective. Sean Fanning was uh, an introvert like me, and uh, we were hackers, and and we were happiest when we were off in a corner, just hacking on things and making things work, and and doing stuff like that. Barker much more suited uh, and adaptable in front of a camera and, and in relationship building. Uh, and I think he had a lot of ideas as we saw this thing start to take off around the kinds of businesses that we could build around it. But uh, as we all know, uh, he wasn't that disciplined around sharing what those ideas were. And ultimately, some of his exchanges were the things that sunk us in court when we were fighting uh, to stay open. Mm-hmm. Uh, before we, I get to the court case, um, what, what do you think um, the effect of fame of all the attention had on on fanning sean fanning oh it crushed him mm. it crushed him this is again put it into perspective the guy was 15 or 16 when he first started working on this thing uh his, his he's starting to see it take off and his uncle takes 70 percent of the company without talking to him about it uh, and i remember that day because sean was really down uh and told me and i don't think he told anyone else maybe a few others uh, but that was a really dark day for him. And then all the way through towards uh, being the literal target. Right? It wasn't Napster, it was him. Some people really uh, liked him and adored him and, and raised him up. You know, Red Herring articles and Time Magazine articles and things like that. And the others just absolutely vilified him. And in both cases, Sean you know, was basically just a kid um, uh, you know, from humble beginnings who didn't have a strong father figure, and the only thing that he had for a father figure had effectively betrayed him uh, right when it started out. Uh, and, and so a very complicated experience for him. I don't want to speak too much for him, and I think he does. I think Alex Winter did an excellent job in his documentary Agreed. Uh, from 2012 and, and really framing the personal impact there. But, man, you know, that coupled with Fanning's style, which was, uh, you know, stack of Red Bulls, program for 36 hours straight and then disappear for two no word no peep uh i think he was going through all sorts of crazy experiences and he didn't have a whole lot of people to reach out to to support support him he had some good people around him ricky sideman was a wonderful influence i think ali and myself we were always there to support him we always wanted to raise him up uh but you know what most people don't realize uh and i and i, and I partly think this is due to the early beginnings of the board um, we didn't attract the best managers and the best investors. We didn't because of that. Uh, so we were always struggling and challenged by, um, you know, sort of these old ways of thinking about how companies should, should go. There wasn't a playbook for how startups go and how important engineers are to bringing technolo- disruptive technology to the fore. And there were a lot of missteps around the culture and making employees feel valued and enabled and supported. Uh, and that impeded us. I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that uh, you, you might think this, the first rocket ship would attract all the best people, but it didn't, at least from a management and board level standpoint. And, and you're, so you're saying that a, a large part of that was just sort of the dysfunctional roots of the company and the board, but also was it the fact that the business model itself was questionable? Like, to what degree? Sure. What to what degree is a Kleiner Perkins scared away not just by John Fanning but also by the the potential legal troubles? 
I mean, there's a real, there's a real question and a legitimate reason why some people passed on investing. What, there's risk and liability associated with it. And I think, I think it was only this year that Hummer Windblad stuff finally got settled. I think it was this year. Hmm. So it's, it's taken a long time to unwind all that stuff for sure. Um, because the recording industry didn't just sue Napster. They sued the investors. They sued the individuals who invest in the firm. They sued the LPs of those firms. Like, they went after everybody. And as we all know, they went after users, too. They just they got very, very sue-happy. Uh, and I think disenfranchised a ton of their own market. But you're right. Uh, the legal implications were questionable. Uh, the business model I, de- definitely wasn't defined, and, and there certainly was nothing to reference to say, oh, yeah, we'll do a freemium model, right? Well, let me, we'll let, do... me, let me jump in real quick. I know yeah. this, this was not your ballywick, but if I asked you, and I am, what do you think the, the, the business model of Napster was, what would you say? We had a digital artist advantage program where we were trying to get artists to sign up and uh, exclusively distribute their content through the Napster platform. Uh, I don't know if we were ever contemplating charging a consumer fee, but I believe our model was around revenue sharing uh, and uh, performance fees through distribution on the system. Mm-hmm. So in essence, just trying to become a new distribution model for, yeah. for music direct to users bypassing these crappy CDs that are increasingly becoming burdensome mm-hmm. and that work, you know, you'd pay $20 for a piece of plastic for one or two songs that you really liked. And it's certainly not a, no way to discover new music, which was really what I loved about Napster. And what I think a lot of people did was it wasn't just finding the one song that you wanted to hear, but then you go look at a user's library of music and see, Oh, well, if they like this and maybe they'll like, uh, maybe they'll like other stuff I've never seen before. I'll try, you know, one click and you can play it. We sort of take this experience for granted now in the iTunes experience where you can go visit any artist's page, see their albums, see a song, and get a little 30-second preview. But we were able to do that back in 1999. Uh, and that was a very profound experience, especially for all the people who were just coming online for the first time then. So this is a difficult question for the reasons that we said about, like, you know, retrospect and hindsight and all that stuff. But to the best of your recollection, at the time, when, when the lawsuits come in from the record industry, at the time, did you feel like you'd be able to beat them? Yeah, I think we did. I think internally we all saw the safe harbor part of the DMCA as, you know, pretty obvious uh, and uh, certainly uh, our lawyers, David Bowie's at the time, uh, was a very well-known lawyer and had been successful uh, in his career, uh, felt like he could argue the case. Uh, I, I go back to saying, you know, you, you really, first of all, again, you, there's nothing like an experience like this, and so no one knows what it's supposed to look like. Second of all, a, a, li- a liability risk around an untested thing in court at a scale that's never been tested before. Right, the DMCA was created uh, for rights holders uh, and and for you know carriers of content, but I don't think anyone ever tested it at this level of scale. Uh, so there was all of that, uh, but I do believe, um, you know, from my point point of view, from the other engineers' points of view, like look at like everybody loves this thing. Surely we can negotiate, right? We're not trying to necessarily 
take anything from anyone, but not unlike, again, look, having the benefit of hindsight, not unlike Uber and saying, hey, look, there's a monopoly that is an inefficient system in the market. This is a way more efficient system, and it's direct consumer, and it, and it creates more revenue opportunities. It doesn't take away. Uh, let's talk. Uh, and I think we very reasonably thought we could move forward in that conversation with, with uh, partners, and we certainly tried. And we thought we had a defense in court, which is a defense that gets used today, Right? It's why YouTube is still in business and not stewed out of existence is because, hey, uh, you know, we're under the DMCA safe harbor part, and uh, uh, you know, if you tell us what, what songs to take down, we'll take them down for you. Uh, but you know, as they say, in, in all revolutions, what happens at the end of a revolution, uh, they march the rebel leaders up to a wall and they shoot them. Well, and they, uh, that's effectively what happened to us. They also say that, that leaders always have arrows in their back. And <laughs> I, I, I try not to lead. I try not to ask leading questions, but sure. it, it, now in retrospect, do you think Napster sort of had to be the scapegoat? Like that, the recording industry needed a scalp, Absolutely. and it was going to be you. It, it, I don't think Apple would have done what they did if someone had not come before and paved the path, right? I don't think any of these other tools that proliferated well. Um, would it, I don't think their investors and their backers and Apple as a public company is one example. I don't think anyone would have taken the risk if they if they didn't have someone coming before to blaze that path, and and sh- reveal where a lot of the early mistakes would happen, right? Uh, I just don't think that would have happened. So I think Napster was this bright supernova that showed what was possible in so many different ways, and it and it didn't just disrupt the music industry; it disrupted. Um, and and really evolved and challenged the network infrastructure, the broadband infrastructure. So we were really po- we were really popular at universities at first because everybody had broadband, but uh, the majority of consumers were on dial-up modems, 56, 56k modems back then. Uh, and one of the cool things we got to work on, as a little aside, was uh, as is even universities struggled with the data transfer uh, issues uh, that the P2P system was creating. Uh, they created a second internet called Internet Two. The name of the project was the Abilene Project, mm-hmm. uh, and it was a different set of backbones that were higher bandwidth that were largely just through universities. It's a test case uh, that weren't used uh, for many commercial purposes. And we worked with them, say, oh, when a client connects from uh, a known network address inside of the Abilene Project, route them to these servers so that the data transfer happens more efficiently. Uh, so we changed all these different things, and we blazed the path, and, you know, again, in every place that we disrupted, there were people who loved what we were doing and there were people who hated what we were doing. And, and in order to disrupt things, especially when you're first up, generally you're going to take the most damage and have arrows in your back and sometimes it's going to take you down. And uh, that Napster was the textbook, textbook example of that. So you had this huge role basically, you know, as the chief architect, you're basically keeping the lights on. <laughs> you're, you're scaling the system to, you know, 20, 25 million uh, users. Uh, but you didn't. You weren't the public face. Like you didn't get the the public credit. Was that your choice um, at the time? It was two. It was two different choices. Um, the the most straightforward direct answer is that the CEO had a conversation with uh, uh, the marketing group, and they decided that the public would be a lot more receptive to this notion of two young 17-year-olds blazing a path for the next, for the greatest internet startup of all time uh, than two 17-year-olds and a somewhat older, wiser 20-year-old. Uh, so that was, that was the reasoning on that. 
um, on my side of things, like just to put it in perspective, we were successful, we were doing great things, had all these wonderful experiences, but I was 20, and my dad was dead too. And I didn't have, uh, I had even less good advice from, from folks than Fanning did by that point. And I had imposter syndrome, and I, and I also probably had a little bit of a, uh, a psychological thing going on for myself. I, one, one hand, I lo- enjoyed being the, the guy behind the curtain uh, and supporting Fanning and trying to help him because the man deserved it and he needed it, and we were all basically family. Uh, and the other part of it was uh, I kind of had a chip on my shoulder about self-aggrandizing people, and that influenced uh, me choosing not to stand up for myself or fight for that or ask for it. Uh, and in retrospect, I think that that was probably a mistake, and not because I needed to self-aggrandize myself, but because you know we all see how history has been written now and, and frankly rewritten. But I don't know. It was I had a chip on my shoulder against people who got up and said how great they were, because here we were, we were actually great, doing crazy things that no one had ever done before, and and we didn't. You know, there was sort of a. Uh, an ego boost to being able to say, we don't have to get out there and say how great we were. We're not like those jerks. Um, and the other part of it was, uh, it just felt like uh, I wasn't valued. And it didn't feel, it didn't feel like, I, I know this is true not just for myself, but for a lot of people on the engineering team. If your name wasn't Sean Fanning, then the management team thought of you as a resource. They didn't mm. think of you as someone involved. Uh, and that's, that's, I think, where the circumstances played well to Parker because Parker was the public face and was anchoring. Uh, and, and if you go back and you look at a lot of the material, Parker would always do most of the talking because Fanning is an introvert and, and didn't feel like he was in his natural surroundings. Parker did, and I think he did a good job being the face of, of what we were. But for everyone else involved, uh, all the early technical co-founders, uh, including myself, um, the company just didn't care. And so that also influenced uh, our own perspectives of ourselves uh, as as young and unde- undeveloped and inexperienced as we were. Yeah, and I, I, that's such an interesting point that you make, that this is an era before engineering talent is so valued to the point that they're rock stars and, and you're the right. true stars of the company. Right. We were actual rock stars. Right. Like, there is, I, and I'm not kidding. I mean, yeah. I'm not saying that to self-aggrandize. I'm saying we actually did crazy things that no one had ever done before, and we kept knocking out impossible problems that no one ever, had ever solved before, right? And you probably still don't know that, right? Cause, because we were under litigation, we needed to be careful and quiet. We needed to uh, uh, subdue a lot of information. People needed to control and shape the messaging, which I understood because we were exposed to a tremendous amount of risk and liability if we lost in court. So there were all these like complex uh, high pressure dynamics going on. And if you're, you know, a young punk kid, you know, not even 21 yet, uh, who uh, is a hacker and who's an introvert and uh, who loves to spend time uh, racking the 1U boxes and our crappy above net cage down in San Jose and, you know, rat's nest wire this thing into a, a consumer grade Linksys switch because the Cisco 2621 couldn't handle the traffic uh, to the uplink 
couldn't figure out the full duplex thing. Like I was that guy and I love to build these systems and construct these systems. And I got a lot of dopamine and a lot of satisfaction out of that. So it was easy to compartmentalize all these bad feelings of not feeling valued and not feeling uh, worthy, feeling almost like an imposter, uh, uh, which I don't think served me uh, down the road. So I'm I'm getting the sense that Napster might have burned you out a little bit because like you you leave I think Halloween day of 2000 so that's before the whole curtain comes down quite be- a while before. Well, no. Uh the curtain came down twice. Mm. Uh that was past the first one. So right. we were injuncted. Uh I remember uh writing the functionality to the command, the administrative command to basically shut off all the servers and then pushing that code. Mm. Uh, they would stay running, but they would boot all of the users on the servers and then not accept new connections. And I remember going through that and feeling super down in the dumps. Uh, of, of course, you couldn't hear it, but it certainly felt like I could hear the moment I ran that command and the network was quiet, everything was silent. And it sucked. And then we got a stay of the injunction, and so we were back on board. Right, we enabled the network. People started logging in again, uh, and then that's that's where the main court battle happened. Now, we were at risk, definitely, of being shut down, and in fact, were shut down a second time. Uh, in between the first and the second, uh, we had been raising money from, as we now know, Bertelsmann, mm-hmm. uh, sixty million dollars investment, uh, and it was the day we announced the Bertelsmann agreement that. I resigned. Mm. What no one knows, only a very few people know, is that I actually resigned two weeks before that. And so here's your internet history story. Okay. By that point, I still, uh, so I had done everything from leading the back end to managing the moderator community to being the central security contact point. Uh, most people these days don't remember Y2K. But if you were online and Y2K was coming up uh, and you made a childish bomb threat, the FBI would want to know. That's for real. So Mm. I did all these different things. I developed the code. I racked the systems. I wired the systems. I wrote the operating system, uh, automated operating system installer for a CD uh, so that when we racked these systems, they just boot up and have the code on them. Did all this stuff. um, And as we evolved and grew and we moved office locations, uh, a couple times, uh, I had you know w- would delegate or give up a few of these responsibilities. But by that point of the Bertelsmann investment, I was still the uh, 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 mail admin. So I was the back in the old days of Unix email systems. If a message, an email was misaddressed, uh, it would get bounced to the postmaster, and the postmaster could do something with it. Uh, around the late 90s, this mechanism really wasn't the preferred mechanism. You'd simply bounce it back to the the original sender. But when you're being sued by the federal government, uh, if if a lawyer mistypes your email address, they don't care. They think they've delivered notice to you. So Mm. we couldn't afford to not – we couldn't afford for anything to bounce. Mm. So I still played the role of postmaster, and my job was to – uh, make sure all mail got to where it was. And this happened less and less frequently, so it wasn't a big deal, but that's that's what that was about. And one day, uh, I think in, in September, I think it was in September, uh, John Fanning misaddressed an email. 
to internal counsel and some people within the company. Mm-hmm. And for the first and only time in my life, uh, I'd step outside the bounds of maintaining confidence. And I read the email because it just, we've been through so much. And it was an email about diligence. And no one knew anything within the company. And to give you context, uh, we've been having these increasingly crappy experiences as engineers within the company. We, we took on new management. We took on people who didn't understand where the value of the company was or how things worked. Um, they, they did have good respo- important responsibilities elsewhere. But again, we all know Napster was nothing if not technology that worked. Uh, and we would want to do things like uh, sit together as an engineering team, as a back-end team. And they said, no. We had to sit in cubes. Like, the, no reason to say no, but just an increasingly crappy experience. And, uh, you know, there were all these executives and all these handouts and perks being being given to people, except the engineering team was still making between 60 and 90K a year. Uh, to just put that in perspective, uh, 60 was on the low end, 90, you know, was a reasonable place, but we were seeing so much more money get sent out and, and spent on other things. And yet we were the people working nights and weekends and making this thing hum. So when I saw these diligence documents, I couldn't not read them before I passed them on. And in there, uh, for, for those of you that don't know, uh, when you're raising money and you're going through diligence, you have to disclose your liabilities. And that includes... Uh, compensation packages and perks and things like that. And what it revealed was uh, a completely different level of compensation uh, perks for people that a lot of us didn't even think added value to the company. Meanwhile, we were all struggling and challenged to negotiate even just basic increases in compensation and having the company bend on th- on really simple simple things that make us feel valued. Uh, and so when I read all this stuff, like that was it. My soul had been crushed a couple different ways, but then when I said, when I saw that, no, here it is, and incontrovertible proof that this executive team actually doesn't really care about us and they value the wrong things, I resigned. Uh, I walked into the office of Eddie Kessler. He, I don't think he, if he ever listens to this, this will be news to him maybe. Uh, and I told him I wanted to resign, and he, not knowing that I knew, said. I'd like you to reconsider. In two weeks, you might have a different perspective. <laughs> I knew what he was talking about, but I didn't let on that I did. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I said, okay, uh, I don't think that things are going to change, but you've asked me to wait two weeks, so I will. And I waited two weeks, and I waited to see how the company framed it. And one of the things that I knew was that it was $60 million, not 50 This is the, the, Bert- million. the Bertelsmann investment, we should say. The Bertelsmann investment was, was for 60 with a $10 million set aside for an actual label, which was the way we were going to bring on artists. But when it was announced to the company and to the public, it was a $50 million investment. For me, trust had been eroded. Confidence had been eroded. The fact that you know, we were the lifeblood of making the, the technology function and work and that if, without us, they had no jobs and they weren't even honest about that. Uh, that was the final straw for me. So you're right. I was crushed. I was burned. Uh, and it was time for me to go. I was the first founder, co-founder to go. Uh, although one could argue that, uh, you know, ongoing disappearances by other co-founders might have constituted a similar level of disengagement. Uh, but that, I was the first one to actually make the leap. 
And then the service got shut down permanently and the investment got made and a ton of money got spent on consultants to create a manual, what we would now think of as a as a isolated crowdsourcing system to, to look at real-time index results and, and delete things from the index so people couldn't search. So there's a bank of 20 computers set up uh, where people would just sit there and review uh, bad file names and, and be conservative in order to comply with the court order while they built uh, uh, a new system with it was actually pretty decent. Like I, I thought the quality of engineering was great and what they developed after that uh, you know, from an encryption standpoint kind of went overboard, but it was try- to comply with all uh, court mandates that I think were intended to be impossible, uh, quite frankly, but they still did a lot. But in the end, we still lost, lost the court case and it didn't matter. So it was all for nothing. Well, let's, let's uh, wrap this up a little by, t- by bringing it back to you. Um, so after sure. after this experience, like we said, it's it's pretty intense. You feel a little burned out. Uh, to my mind, you could go one of two ways where you're like, you know what, that's startup life. That's not for me. I, I, I'm going to go back to school and I don't I don't know teach music or something, right? Or yeah. or you can double down and and be like, you know what, I got burned. I'm going to do it right the next time. And and I feel like you kind of chose the latter, maybe. Like if again, <laughs> with the retrospective of 17 years. Um, coming out of Napster, what were you feeling and, and, and what did you learn and, and how did that lead you into the next phase of your career? Yeah, so, so one piece of context before answering. Uh, I do have this pattern of hard experiences and then a break in between. Uh, and those breaks usually look like fixing someone else's situation. Mm-hmm. So immediately after Napster, uh, I joined uh, another startup. Shortly after Napster, I joined another startup. Uh, that had been three years in the running and needed to redo tech and reposition and, and all sorts of stuff there. So that was a lot easier and lower load for me while I recovered my soul from this experience. But you're right. Uh, I'm driven. I can look back and reflect. I, I could say that all the, the things that I've devoted my life to are centered around frustrations that I've experienced uh, and just building something to solve that problem and then realizing that that, that solution is value to other people. So, I had been working a uh, strong open source contributor since the very beginning, since before Napster, during Napster, and after Napster. Built a lot of open source software. So I'm always working on a side project. And I had been working, this is now 2000, late 2000, early 2001, had been working on an open source anti-spam solution. And at the time, you know, I'm not really looking for a hard startup experience, but I had a very formative conversation with uh, my now ex-wife, because uh, startups are hard, and uh, she, I was really intent upon sharing this cool machine learning tech. Now, keep in mind, machine learning and AI is hot now, mm-hmm. but back then it was you know the stuff of academics, mm-hmm. and they were really hard to decode these algorithms from these obfuscated white papers. But I had read a bunch of stuff about machine learning, specifically Bayesian classifiers and started working on an anti-spam solution. There was nothing like it. So as I'm working on it, it's, and it's working and it's successful, uh, my, my ex-wife walks up behind me and says, you know, what are you working on? She's a technical recruiter. Uh, and I said, well, I'm, uh, it's this open source system. It's going to be great. Everybody loves it. Everyone's going to love it. Uh, there's nothing like it. It's super effective, more effective than anything else in the market today. And she's like, okay, great. So I kind of get that. Do you think people would pay for it? And I said, well, uh, Maybe, but 
I really want to, I really want to do this as an open source. And it's sort of an ego boost and a giving back and, a, and all those sorts of things. And he's mm-hmm. like, no, she puts her hand on my shoulder and she says, no, <laughs> no, you need, you need to go make me some money. So, uh, that planted the seed in my mind. Uh, and then, and then like pretty much everything that I've done in my life, uh, that was just me pursuing something that instinctively made sense. So I didn't, I didn't set out and say, oh boy, that was a really painful experience, but I love startups. Let me go start another company. Uh, it's more of these, this is what I tend to do is have a problem that I'm solving for myself, recognize that that problem has a lot of value. So the solution has a lot of value to other people and then start building companies and businesses around those things. And that's what happened with CloudMark and that's what happened with CloudCrowd and that's how, what happened with Atlas. Mm-hmm. Um and right, we should point out that the, the the spam idea that you were discussing became became CloudMark. Um, That's right. And um, it, it, real briefly, do you want to talk about the idea behind Servio? Your experience there. Yeah, it was a unique experience for me uh, in a lot of different ways. Uh, I would say possibly uh, the toughest, most durable, most adaptable. Uh, engineering team I ever built uh, was at uh, Servio. And, and I think part of that had to do with the difficult part of the experience, uh, which was me and my co-founder uh, effectively didn't share the same set of values. Uh, he had his strengths and his weaknesses, mine as well. Uh, but fundamentally, uh, he wanted to run the P&L and I wanted to uh, build a tech team and product. And we did a great job around those latter things. Uh, and the business was successful. We had paying customers. Revenue was ramping up pretty well. Uh, but the, the hardest part of that experience was uh, building a culture and a team around that culture where what I now know and I've learned repeatedly is that, that the true culture, the true values, the true principles everybody must abide by are the ones that the person at the top follows. It's not... It, However they behave, however they act, however they make choices is actually how organizations need to run or a lot of unhappiness ensues. And that was the situation we were in was the team we had uh, were oriented towards my values and my ethos and uh, my co-founders were different. And that made for a very, very challenging experience. But out of that, I learned a couple things. The, the first one was the importance of understanding being able to, to discover, understand, relate, and connect another person's values to your own because startups are incredibly difficult. They're one of the most challenging experiences I've had in my life, uh, and somehow I keep doing them. Uh, but you have better shot if you're diligent around good relationships in those high-pressure environments the same way you would be around a person you want to marry or a person you want to be best friends with for the next 20 years. Right? Things that make all those relationships successful are identical at the base level. Do we believe in the same things? Do we not? So that was one big final reaffirmation was, oh, don't ever start a company again with people who don't share your values or be mindful of that. And, and when things shift and change, make it okay for people to part ways. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and that, that, that keeps you oriented around the toughest, uh, uh, the, the most important things. The other thing I learned out of that is uh, – you can't, I don't think you can construct a great team. I think you can position the pieces and you can do a better job or a worse job of that, but it's the crucible 
of the hard experience that makes the great team. And in other words, if I shorten it, the other insight I got was it has to be challenging. It has to be hard. It's that evolutionary pressure to live, to survive is not there. If there is no intersection between adversity, scarcity, and necessity, then you don't grow, you don't evolve, uh, you don't innovate, you don't come up with ingenious solutions. And so why do I think that that team, uh, and we, we endured a lot of, of challenge and, and frankly trauma. Startups are hard. This one was, was maybe unnecessarily hard. Uh, but why were they so great? Uh, it's because uh, we did all share a lot of the same values and endured together. And that is what grew our bonds together. And uh, with those strong bonds, we were able to achieve an incredible amount. Like we built a crowdsourcing platform start to finish integrated with Facebook with quality control and workflow, which are all three things that Mechanical Turk doesn't have in six months mm. and delivered it. And a year later, we figured out our killer market. Uh, so really, really proud of that team and what they were able to accomplish with me. Um, you know, such a privilege to have worked with them. Uh, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's hard to say. Maybe it sucks to, to hear the reason why we were great is because it was so shitty. But I would say the same thing about Napster. Is the reason why we, we achieved so much with so little was because we didn't have a choice. Right? No one, there was no buffet bar, there was no you know, free back rubs or, or any perks like that. It was, you know, you've got a very little bit amount of money, you, no one knows how to solve these problems, you've got to sit down and figure them out, and it's that adversity and scarcity and necessity, you know, with that natural selective uh, uh, evolutionary bias, that you have to do it or you're going to be out of business and out of a job. And that's a harsh thing to say but it is actually the thing that forms the crucible that forges greatness in people. And without it, I, I really don't see how you get there. I, I like to end by asking people what they're interested in today, like what, what they're passionate about. And so, I mean, obviously, if that's Atlas Informatics, we can talk about that. Or sometimes people like to answer with, you know, the, the tech or ideas that interest them the day. But so, so what, what, what really floats your boat these days? What's your passion? Yeah. So, you know, back along the theme of having personal frustrations and then trying to solve them myself and then realizing there has value for other people and that makes a business. Uh, the thing that, that increasingly has been a frustration for me that actually led to Atlas uh, is this new world of fragmentation that we live in, data fragmentation. So, you know, back in the day, 10, 20 years ago, we used to talk about data silos of a different kind, but... You know, my, my data on one device didn't talk to another device, or my data, uh, you know, this, this binary file format was incompatible with this other binary file format. But at least all my data was in one place, uh, it was on the file system. Now I have all these apps and services, everything's spread out everywhere. The average consumer's got 130 different accounts from buying things online and email accounts and social and networking accounts and IM accounts and file sharing accounts and all of this stuff. Our stuff is spread out everywhere. And, you know, I see. That, that's a point of frustration. For me, I remember it all as one thing, but these devices are still stupid. They're being marketed as being smart. They're, you know, we will uh, suggest things to you in Siri or suggest things to you in Google Now. Uh, 
but but they're all still kind of these crappy heuristic things. Meanwhile, I, I can't I don't know where all my stuff is. And what what really interests me is this notion that these devices are so stupid and it's unnecessary for that to be. So how do we make them smart? They see everything we see. They see everything we do. They they could have a memory like we do, and they could associate things the same way we associate them. Uh, but why don't they? Right? And 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 in this highly world of a highly fragmented world, uh, big data, which has all these wonderful, powerful connotations, uh, positive connotations, there's there's all these negative implications, which is it's big data, but the data is everywhere. And and how do you build a complete picture of you with which to make these devices actually smarter? Right? Why are, are Google's suggestions not that great? Because they don't know what I'm doing outside Google. Same thing with Apple, same thing with Amazon, same thing with Microsoft, same thing with Dropbox and Slack. Uh, they can only do so much because they're these isolated things. So my passion right now is solving two really key important problems. The first is, uh, how do I know where all my stuff is? Like, because my memory, my memory could... I, I see everything. These devices see everything. And we basically, they're always on. They're always connected. They have unlimited storage. It's called the cloud. It's where the Internet lives. And it's not full yet, so why not just index everything that I see and then use that to learn about the user, learn about what's important to them, and that parlay that into actually making these devices smarter to, to the point where I have trust and confidence that it knows me and I might lend it some agency to do things for me. You know, there's all these great tools, all these marketed tools, uh, these AI assistants, and right, they're very right. narrow, right? Uh, the scheduling agent, uh, what's the key innovation there uh, is that it can parse emails into some sort of structured action. Right. That's cool. We have these things called, you know, Siri and Cortana, and we can interact with them. And we, what's the critical innovation there? It's the human-machine interface once again, uh, taking what I say, converting it to text, converting that to a structured query, and running it. But they're all still talking to the same data sources. They have very, very narrow views of us. And that's why, despite the promises they make, they're still kind of crappy, because they don't know you. They don't understand the context that you're in. And so my passion is around solving that, and that's what Atlas Informatics is. It's a, it's a, a new kind of app. It's not a specific verticalized thing, and it's not one killer feature. It's, it's, a, it's a system that's learning what's important to you because it sees everything you see in a safe and secure way and allows you to search it, and it's going to make suggestions from that very shortly, and it's going to enable all these other things around intelligence that everybody wants to deliver on, but, but no one's actually trying to solve the core problem, which is how to get a complete picture of the user from which to make good, reasonable inferences against. So that's my, that's my world. That's my passion. I put, <laughs> I'd say, more than 100% of my life over the last couple of years into this thing, and that's, that's, the, that's the problem that I think solving that problem in a meaningful way unlocks a whole new generation of what intelligence can do uh, with that complete picture of you and, and understanding what's important to you. Now, that's why I like to ask that question that way, because I, I can hear your passion and that it's really inspiring. And, and to be quite honest with you, that's a hell of a great problem to solve. So, <laughs> Yeah, it's a worthy problem. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so um, I swear this is the last question, and then we're going to... Um, do you subscribe to a, a streaming music service today, and if so, which one? Pandora. Mm. The reason why, 
so there's, there's, there's two experiences I had that form this. Um, the first was the day uh, I installed iTunes and, and, and enabled it. Long been a Winamp guy, long had accumulated a <clears throat> legal library, but rather large legal library of mm-hmm. music, uh, and had it organized by folder and playlists. And then uh, one fateful day, I installed the Windows version of iTunes, and I left checked the Organize My Music folder for me. Oh, no. And overnight, is gone. Yeah. And, 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 and I still have all that music, and I have no way to find it at this point. Uh, so I had that experience, which sort of really closed off a lot of uh, exposure and discovery mechanisms because I think iTunes is still quite a crappy interface. The other is, at some point, there's so much music out there. Uh, I really just like, out of convenience, the system to get to know me and make suggestions to me. And what I love about Pandora is it's pretty good. Hmm. It's actually pretty damn good. Mm-hmm. Right? Uh, say I like these things. I, I use the thumbs up and thumbs down button vigorously mm-hmm. to, to teach the system. I'm willing to do that. And then I can just leave it on autopilot. And it's wonderful. So for me, uh, they get huge kudos. And, and the whole you know, taxonomic ontology they have on the back end for how you describe music and how they do these intersected suggestions uh, and expand the exposure radius, uh, I, th- I think is also technically clever uh, and super valuable. All right, Jordan Ritter, thank you so much for your time, but thank you also for um, remembering really one of the really singular startup stories of, of all of technology, but definitely of the last 20 years. Thank you so much. I appreciate the time. If this is the first time you're listening to this podcast, please subscribe to us on your podcast app of choice. There's plenty more great internet history where that came from. And if you're a longtime listener, then you know what to do to help us out. Rate and review us on iTunes. Because iTunes gives credit to reviews and ratings, and the more great reviews we get, the more people will discover us. As always, there's more info on our website, www.internethistorypodcast.com. The show's Twitter handle is at NetHistoryPod, and my personal Twitter is at BrianMCC. Thanks for listening.